to hear from a, a new member of our um, ISUSA, uh, we can't call it a fraternity, I guess we can call it a fraternity sorority uh, here at, uh, in San Francisco, uh, Phyllis Shu, who has uh, really uh, made major contributions to our understanding of the cardiac complications of HIV and its therapies, and one, been one of the people who has uh, been very important in helping us begin to deconvolute what used to be a very complicated um, uh, set of discussions about whether it was the drugs, uh, the treatment, or both. And so she's going to tell us today about emerging data uh, along the lines of cardiovascular risk, uh, inflammation, uh, and uh, management of HIV infection. And Dr. Shu is an associate professor of medicine at UCSF, uh, and uh, we're delighted to have you, uh, Priscilla. Uh, thanks so much for the introduction, and um, now that we have the slides going, I'm, I feel a little better, but uh, I'm delighted to be here and uh, just, uh, just really thrilled to be able to give a talk to everyone this afternoon. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about HIV inflammation and cardiovascular disease. So, you know, I get all my information now from the New York Times, especially medical information, even though they seem to hate physicians. And I was really struck by this um, headline a couple of years ago that, um, you know, if you look at the data, in just a couple of years, the uh, percentage of individuals age 50 and older with HIV infection is going to be about 50%. And so that's really tremendous uh, from a, a cardiologist's point of view. And so I think chronic disease conditions, including HIV infection, are becoming increasingly important health issues. And it's important also for cardiologists to be very aware of this um, issue. This is a slide showing then now all the different non-AIDS conditions that are increasing importance in HIV-infected individuals. So, you know, at the top of the list is cardiovascular disease, but in fact there's lots of other disease conditions, including um, perhaps a premature renal disease, aging, um, frailty, all of which may contribute to accelerate aging. And we now think that um, chronic inflammation, in, even in the setting of treated HIV infection, probably underlies a lot of these, um, the mechanistic um, uh, underpinnings of these conditions. So for today, this is kind of a busy slide, but I hope we can build upon a lot of the components. I wanted to review the different causes of coronary artery disease among individuals with HIV infection. So I want to start first with a patient case, and this is from our HIV cardiology clinic at San Francisco General. It's really one of the first of its types in the nation, and we get uh, referrals from all around the country. So this is a 44-year-old gentleman with HIV. His um, T-cell count is 280, and his viral load is 50,000. He's currently being treated with um, lopinavir, ritonavir, abacavir, and tenofovir. And like a lot of my patients, he has a lot of risk factors. You can see here his blood pressure is slightly elevated. And like all of my patients, he smokes cigarettes. And you can see his uh, cholesterol panel here. And I think he got referred to me just after he'd been seen by every single subspecialty um, person with shortness of breath. So we referred him. Um, well, actually, I wanted to do an audience response first. What's the patient's 10-year cardiovascular risk? So less than five. Five to ten. Okay. All right. Fantastic. So half of the audience said greater than 20%. So this is good. It looks like I will be out of a job soon. So that's fantastic. So I think you guys hit it right on the button. Um, this is uh, predicted risk using the Framingham risk score. So it has the components of age, LDL cholesterol, HDL, blood pressure, diabetes, and cigarette smoking. 
So if you um, tally up uh, this individual's risk factors, so 50-year-old male, he gets points for that. LDL is extremely high. Blood pressure is high, too, and he's a cigarette smoker. He does calculate um, greater than 20% risk in the next 10 years, which is very high risk. And actually, if you Google Framingham risk score, you'll get this um, calculator, so I just want to bring it up. Um, it's the NCEP ATP3 tool. And basically, it's slightly different in that you can see here it doesn't have diabetes because that's just considered a risk equivalent these days. And it also um, has a category for um, patients who are on a blood pressure medication. This tool is slightly different than the other tool because the other tool uh, includes um, points for the development of angina. It's thought to be more of a soft risk calculator. So this is just in case um, so you can be aware of the differences. So let's say he comes to your office and he wants to know what test should you order to evaluate his shortness of breath. So stress echo, exercise treadmill, some kind of exercise with nuclear imaging, just jump to cardiac cath or some kind of carotid ultrasound. <laughs>
But for those of you who brought up stress echo, there's been some interesting uh, recent data on this. This was published last year. A group of over 300 patients with HIV who had known or suspected CAD. Interestingly, about one-third of those individuals had abnormal stress echo, and this was independently prognostic um, uh, for cardiovascular events in this patient population. So that was very interesting. And in their study, then a normal stress echo was um, very protective. So I think stress echo and HIV, this is one of the first studies, you know, could definitely be an important um, diagnostic technique in the future. So I wanted to move on. The, this patient was on a bunch of different HIV meds. So I wanted to see what the audience thought. Are his meds contributing to his cardiovascular risk? So yes, no, or maybe. Okay. <laughs> so about one third of people say yes, 8% say no, and over half say maybe. So I think I would agree with the, uh, the maybe folks. And just with a caveat, it's extremely complicated. So let's review some of the data about this. So I think a lot of the, um, uh, this is one of the first studies to look at this. This is from the HIV outpatient study. This study was interesting because you can see here on the um, x-axis they have year, and on the y-axis they have um, incidence of myocardial infarction. You can see what's interesting is right around 1996, you can see an increase in the incidence of MI, which in this study they independently link to um, uh, protease inhibitor use. And this is Dr. Mary Krause's study from the French hospital database, also looking at exposures to protease inhibitors. You can see here, interestingly, if you've been on a protease inhibitor for more than 18 months, you have an increased um, incidence of 15.9-fold of incidence of MI, which increases um, as the duration of exposure increases as well. So, of course, uh, in medicine, not everything is easy, I think, as we all know. And this is one of the few studies that showed no risk of um, antiretroviral medication and um, cardiovascular risk. And this is Dr. Bozzetti's study, the VA study of HIV-infected individuals. Stigra may be hard to see, but over on the left-hand side, we have use of any HIV medication. And you can see, and on the y-axis is um, uh, years of exposure. You can see here as time increases, you know, of course, exposure to HIV medication increases. If you look over that same time interval, um, you can see that overall mortality decreases. And interestingly, admissions for cardiovascular cerebrovascular disease decrease over that same time. So, you know, of note, this uh, um, study only captured inpatient hospitalizations. So it's possible that with the low number of events overall that they just missed out on this and weren't able to show the link between HIV meds and cardiovascular disease. So the next um, study then is the DAD study, and this is probably our most um, our largest study with the most long-term follow-up. This is a prospective study of over um, 11 centers in the U.S. and abroad. And their, in their initial study, they showed that um, there was a 22% relative increase per year of exposure to antiretroviral medication. And then in a follow-up study um, published in New England Journal, they found that it was specifically exposure to protease inhibitors that was responsible to this risk. And this risk still was there even after adjusting for lipids. So this was not just because of lipid, um, you know, the lipid-raising effects of protease inhibitors. So I think to our um, diagram, antiretroviral therapy and specifically um, protease inhibitors uh, chronically. 
And I think around this time, there were lots of different studies then that looked at HIV infection itself. Um, this is a study from our group, um, which looked at the incidence of subclinical vascular disease as determined using um, carotid artery ultrasound. And um, this is one of the first studies to show them that HIV infection itself was independently associated to higher subclinical vascular disease. Um, since that time, uh, Carl Grunfeld's group has also shown something similar in the FRAM study. What's interesting about this is you can see, um, interestingly, HIV infection was tightly linked to subclinical vascular disease as tight as some very potent traditional risk factors, so as tight as things like diabetes, smoking, and older age. And finally, this is from a study from Steve Grinspoon's group in Boston showing that um, individuals with uh, HIV had an almost double-fold risk of acute myocardial infarction. And of course, the devil's always in the details for these studies. If you read the fine print, they really weren't able to adjust for cigarette smoking, and obviously that's an important confounder. But I do think that the majority of studies now suggest that HIV infection itself is independently associated with um, a higher cardiovascular risk. This is a study that our group did looking at um, angioplasty and restenosis, showing that HIV patients have higher rates of restenosis after um, intervention. And our study was before the era of drug-eluting stents. And so since that time, there's been a FOLD study by our colleagues at CPMC showing that individuals who get drug-eluting stents um, seem to do better with HIV infection afterwards. So to our diagram, I think we should definitely add HIV infection. I want to move back to the patient case and focus in about traditional risk factors. So this, you know, we all know the traditional risk factors are very common among those with HIV. This is uh, data from, uh, again, the HIV outpatient uh, study. Uh, this study actually had so many patients who smoked cigarettes, I think they were unable to show that association between cigarette smoking and uh, cardiovascular events. And again, in the DAD study, traditional risk factors are common. What's striking here is that the risk for cigarette smoking of 2.92 is just under that for those, uh, for those individuals that had a prior cardiovascular event. You can see it's higher than that of diabetes, higher than that of hypertension. So we should remember that cigarette smoking is a very important um, risk factor to address in all our HIV patients. And just to be provocative, I wanted to throw out there, should we now be considering uh, HIV infection a cardiovascular risk equivalent, like something like diabetes? And that, you know, would uh, uh, suggest different uh, targets for cholesterol-lowering, different targets for blood pressuring. There's been a couple studies. Um, you know, I mentioned Carl Grunfeld's study, study in Croy last year that showed that the hazard ratio for HIV and acute MI was, again, similar to that of diabetes. So this is going to be something that just time will tell in the future. So I want to recommend uh, just review the, uh, the JNC7 guidelines for hypertension. I think this is something we're all already aware of, but just showing that prehypertension is in this category of 120 to 139. Again, if your patient has diabetes or renal disease, you want to target this lower goal of 130 over 80. But I think this, is, this should be reviewed for everyone. And again, there's compelling indications for different antihypertensive medications. If your patient's at high risk, you want to start with um, diuretics, beta blockers, or ACE inhibitors, similar agents for individuals with diabetes, so on and so forth. So I'm sure this is review for everyone. I want to bring up this uh, study that was presented at CROI this year. This is a very fascinating study from the Veterans Aging Cohort. They matched HIV-infected and uninfected veterans. 
And very interestingly, they found that elevated blood pressure was strongly related to, you know, risk of acute MI. So that's no surprise. But I think what was surprising was that even these mildly elevated blood pressure levels, so just systolic of 120 to 139, was strongly associated with a higher risk of acute MI and HIV. So this, I think, is something that we should be aware of as clinicians, that tight blood pressure control may be beneficial in this group. So I'm going to go back to an audience response question. Um, I want to say, which patients do you put on aspirin? So everyone who's had an MI. Uh, primary prevention for those without bleeding risk, 10-year predicted um, event rate of 10 to 20%. Our answer is one and two. Okay, great. Fantastic. 83%. So that, that's right on the button. So I just want to review. So any patient with an MI should be on aspirin, and the dose can be from 75 to 162 per day. And in terms of primary prevention, um, th these are the guidelines from the AHA ACC. It's really individuals who are an intermediate predicted risk, so those who are at a 10 to 20% risk in the next 10 years. So it's not everyone who should be on aspirin. I just want to um, also point out that the data for women is much less established, but it sounds like everyone is all over that. So I think to our list, we definitely want to say traditional risk factors, want to move back to the patient case, and now focus in on his lipids. So HDL32, triglycerides of 236, LDL of 190, total cholesterol of 261. So what is the goal LDL for this individual? Less than 70, less than 100, 130, 160, 190. <laughs> Okay, so 41% say less than 70, so I like that those are progressive thinkers. 44% uh, say less than 100, so that would probably be by the guidelines. And we'll review some of the guidelines in the next slide. So this is kind of the ACCHA uh, criteria for assessing um, which individuals, to, which are the LDL cholesterol-lowering levels. So basically you look to see does this patient have CHD or some kind of risk equivalent. Um, you look at the major risk factors, which include cigarette smoking, elevated blood pressure, or on medication, low HDL, family history, or age. And then if there's more than two risk factors, you then calculate the Framingham risk. If they're you know, low risk, moderately high, or a, a risk equivalent, which is greater than 20%. So these are the NSEB ATP3 guidelines. And again, I'm sure that uh, everyone is very familiar with these. So we can see that um, if you're an individual has more than two risk factors and has an intermediate 10-year um, risk, then you want to target uh, you want to target their cholesterol to about greater than 130. And if their 10-year risk is less than 10, they can be above 160. So remember, there were some updates for the NSF ATP3 guidelines that actually for individuals who are very high risk, you could consider a goal less than 70. And in individuals with high triglycerides or low HDL, you want to think about adding a fibrate or um, some kind of nicotinic acid in addition to LDL lowering. And so, again, what makes up individuals at high risk? 
These are individuals of major risk factors um, who smoke cigarettes, who have elements of the metabolic syndrome. So we think of our HIV patients, you know, a lot of our HIV patients are at high risk. So this individual, I agree, I would probably like to target him at less than 70. So with that in mind, which lipid-lowering medication would you choose? Simvastatin, pravastatin, azetamide, atorvastatin, gemfibrozole, or rosuvastatin. Oh, this is fantastic. So um, hardly anyone said simvastatin, and that's what all the cardiologists say, so I'm glad you guys are smarter than the cardiologists. Um, over 50% said atorvastatin, and 11% say rosuvastatin. So why don't we review some of the, uh, the interactions? So there have been tons of studies showing dyslipidemia and protease inhibitors, and so much more than I could review in this half hour. And in terms of the management of um, hyperlipidemia in the setting of protease inhibitors, if you look at the guidelines from the ACTG group, they basically refer you back to the NCEP ATP3 guidelines. I think we as clinicians know that for HIV-infected individuals, there are some specific, uh, special considerations. First of all, that is um, uh, most protease inhibitors inhibit the cytochrome 3 4 isoform. This is the same isoform that metabolizes statins. So if you use certain combinations like simvastatin or lovastatin um, uh, along with protease inhibitors, you can get rhabdomyolysis. Um, we'll review some of the next uh, items on the next slide. So for individuals not on a protease inhibitor, you can pretty much follow NSEP ATP3 guidelines using statin therapy. If a patient is on a protease inhibitor, you want to avoid lovastatin or simvastatin. Atorvastatin is probably okay. Interestingly, you're not supposed to exceed 40 milligrams among individuals on ritonavir. And uh, I can say whenever uh, I'm on the cardiology service, we, I would say about once a week we admit an HIV-infected individual uh, with an acute coronary syndrome. And I'll say 99% of the time the house staff has put that uh, patient on 80 milligrams of Lipitor without even thinking about any of the other meds. So this is an important consideration. Pravastatin is probably okay. There's an interaction with darunavir, but it's our least potent statin. Um, and there may be some benefit in changing to adizanavir. However, a lot of that is lost once it's boosted, uh, boosted with ritonavir. Rosuvastatin is probably okay because it's not um, metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system. There's been several interactions described with um, lopinavir-ritonavir, however, so you're not supposed to exceed 20 milligrams in those individuals. There's a nice website that talks about um, the drug interactions um, that I, I refer to that's, that's useful, so www.hivdruginteractions.org. And just interestingly, I think there's been a lot of talk of HIV-associated inflammation and pleiotropic effects of um, statins. This is a study that was published in GID last year among um, naive HIV-infected individuals, showing that putting them on um, uh, atorvastatin with a short washout period resulted in some um, changes in T-cell activation. So it'll be interesting to explore this idea further in the future. This patient had very high triglycerides, and I get asked this a lot. So what should we do about the high triglycerides? So folks treat with statin first, treat with fibrate, will not change his risk. I guess not sure. All of the above.
Okay, treat with statin first, over 50%, good. 39% said treat with fibrate, and then one person's not sure. Um, okay, very good. So this is, I would say, one of my most challenging issues as a clinician. Um, we get patients with very high triglycerides, and I get asked a lot of times what to do about this. So I just want to review a little. We know that um, high triglycerides increase cardiovascular risk, but after you adjust for elements of the metabolic syndrome, the majority of that risk decreases. Um, levels above 500 should be treated really for prevention of pancreatitis. And for triglycerides less than 500, the guidelines say treat the LDL cholesterol first with a statin and then focus on non-HDL cholesterol. And interestingly, in the cardiology world, there was a study recently called AIM-HIGH, which looked at patients without HIV but with heart disease. There's really no benefit at all in, among individuals on high-dose niacin plus statin versus statin alone. So I think uh, the effect of niacin is really losing favor in the cardiology world because of that study. So, so I think I want to focus a little bit on inflammation in the setting of HIV. So we, this is a, a nice review of atherosclerosis in New England Journal showing a patient um, who died of MI in a photomicrograph. And although we talk a lot about diabetes and hypertension, there's a lot occurring molecularly to um, include in terms of inflammation and immunologic factors which are contributing to this. In fact, in almost any sort of inflammatory marker that you choose to measure in HIV, which is this, uh, whether it be circulating endotoxin, T cell activation, or CRP, it appears to be higher in HIV infection. It appears to be even higher in the setting of treated HIV compared to uninfected controls. In fact, this is a, a major focus of CROI this year. I think everyone in the room already knows about the SMART study um, that showed that um, randomizing individuals to continuous treatment um, appeared to decrease mortality, and this was borderline associated with cardiovascular outcomes. So we all have heard about CRP. Should we measure CRP in this patient, yes or no? <laughs> Okay, 64% say no, and I, I completely agree. I think clinically it's a very limited value. So what do we know about CRP in the setting of HIV? We know that um, it is altered among co-infected individuals. They're associated with lower CRP levels. Among individuals um, with HIV, higher viral loads are not associated with CRP. Um, but again, in um, the Boston studies, elevated CRP and HIV have been associated with cardiovascular events, so they do seem to be predictive. There's lots of emerging biomarkers now in other studies, um, soluble CD14 in the SMART study, fibrinogen and CRP associated with mortality in the FRAM study, and again, um, N-terminal pro-BNP associated with cardiovascular events in others. So when in the SMART study, we know that interruption of heart is bad. Uh, I think I'm going to skip these next slides just in the interest of time. Uh, I'll probably skip this as well, and I apologize. So I just want to mention again, um, this is a study from the ACTG looking at naive patients and randomizing them to three different antiretroviral arms and looking then at vascular function using um, ultrasound. What's interesting here is that it didn't matter, it didn't matter which antiretroviral therapy regimen you were on, but as soon as being, starting HIV meds at four weeks, there was a dramatic 
improvement in vascular function, which continued out to 24 weeks. So just starting antiretroviral therapy seemed to reduce cardiovascular risk in this study, which was uh, very unique. So that was looking at endothelial function in HIV. And from the uh, SMART study, we know that short-term antiretroviral therapy is beneficial. I know there's been a lot of discussion in this meeting about starting meds early versus late. How do we think that will impact cardiovascular risk? So, so this slide is a little bit outdated. So guidelines recommend starting antiretroviral therapy at a certain CD4 count. What do we think initiating antiretroviral meds early? Will that reduce cardiovascular risk? So yes, no. <laughs>
Long-term antiretroviral therapy appears to increase the risk of MI, most likely due to um, exposure to protease inhibitors. Short-term probably reduces risk um, due to HIV-related inflammation. Abacavir, I know, has already been discussed, so I was not going to touch upon it. I think with clinicians, being having aggressive primary prevention is key. So, you know, having your patients stop smoking, checking the blood pressure, and controlling it aggressively. And really, the, for the future, looking at HIV-associated inflammation and ways to reduce this are going to be, I think, some of the hot topics for the future. All right, thanks. Okay, questions for Dr. Shu. You won't be put on a uh, stress uh, <laughs> on, a, on a treadmill if you ask a question. All right. Okay. Yes. Please. I was going to ask you as far as the uh, the elite controllers. I don't yeah. know if you've done any work with the that group. I know that they're doing work at your institution, but if you found anything as far as the markers or as far as the ultrasound. Yeah, so that was part of the slides I skipped over in the interest of time. So we are studying the elite controllers, and we found that they have higher levels of inflammatory markers um, compared to uninfected controls, so things like CRP. Um, we've also found that they have higher levels of uh, carotid IMT and abnormal um, vascular function compared to controls, and also uh, that are similar even to treated suppressed individuals, interestingly. So. They're similar to... Supre uh, sorry, suppressed? Yes. Yes. Why do you think stress echoes are uniquely valuable in uh, HIV uh, uh, patients at risk for coronary artery disease? You know, I think it's possible that HIV patients have, um, you know, no one's ever looked at the symptoms that HIV patients develop, you know, before developing events or developing angina. It's possible that, you know, a lot of patients have atypical symptoms like dyspnea on exertion. You know, it's not always the classic substernal chest pain that radiates to the arm and to the neck. So I think it's possible that stress echo is able to um, detect, you know, the, these individuals get referred for stress echo, and this is able to detect underlying CAD that's not, that's not seen by other modalities. Um, that would be my guess, but, I, you know, I, do, I think the answer is not definitively known at this time. It could be that HIV patients have more, um, the present have more multivessel disease. This is not caught as well on other modalities. Okay, two questions have come up uh, in writing. One is whether you can comment on methamphetamine use and heart health. I guess the question should be heart unhealth. Uh, do you <laughs> have comments about methamphetamine use and cardiac um, issues? Yeah, I think just like um, cocaine, it definitively increases the risk for myocardial infarction. It's also been shown to be very strongly associated with pulmonary hypertension. So this is, and this is definitely in the equation when you evaluate patients. One of the comments you made was that the, um, that the uh, drug-eluting stents seem to really help people with HIV infections. Is that above and beyond what you'd expect from the non-HIV-infected population in terms of the extension of the uh, stent uh, benefit? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's very similar to um, it's very similar to patients with diabetes, I okay. think, how, um, how the HIV patients react to stents. So there's other, been other subgroups that have been shown to not do well in the setting of bare metal stents. And those are, you know, diabetics, patients with renal disease. So I think um, it's very similar to those individuals. Uh, I think
think it's also due to inflammation. You know. Yeah, yeah. So it hasn't been studied in HIV, but if you look at patients without HIV who get restenosis, it's highly related to markers like CRP, um, IL-6, and other inflammatory markers. So my guess it's because of the inflammatory milieu. Okay, and realizing that uh, as an interventional cardiologist, you could be conflicted. Uh, do all patients with HIV need to be on aspirin? <laughs> So um, I'm actually non-invasive, so, so I'm not conflicted. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I think it's again what I the point I brought up to be um, provocative. Should we treat HIV like a risk equivalent, like diabetes? And you know, I have to say I take the whole patient perspective into account. So if it's a patient who's like a 20-pack year smoker who has hypertension, I probably would think about putting that patient on a low-dose aspirin, although it's not data-driven. Yeah. All right, thanks very much, Dr. Shu, for a great talk, and uh, appreciate it very much.